This is The Lisa Show with Lisa Valentine Clark and Richie T. Before I, I, we talk about what our, our next topic, I wanted to remind everyone that you can go to byuradio.org slash Lisa for different ideas um, about like past shows that you can look at and shows that we have done. And we love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your suggestions, not only for feeling um, like we're calling it like a show motto that we're asking for. Um, when you listen to the show, what do you think about the Lisa show at BYU.edu? Uh, also, other questions that you have, show suggestions or guest suggestions um, that maybe you've read a book or you have a topic. You know, I've always wondered about this or that or the other. We'd love to hear your ideas. It's the Lisa show at BYU.edu. And it's open all the time. You can email anytime you want. Now, I want to talk a little bit about something that is tender to a lot of people. Now, growing up, we had what I call a reluctant pet. Um, it was a pet that sort of adopted us. We didn't adopt it. It was a, a stray cat, basically, named Casey, which stood for kitty cat, um, which shows you how how attached we got to it. Well, we named it, but we knew we couldn't keep this cat because my mom was allergic to cats growing up, and I was too, turns out. So we couldn't keep this cat, but this cat just kind of liked to sunbathe on our front steps um, in our childhood home and just kind of like never left. My parents tried to get rid of it, unbeknownst to us, to the kids. That cat, um, my dad took the cat and dropped her off in a field three miles away, like see you later, cat. You don't belong at our house. And then we were really little kids, me and my um, uh, other four other brothers and sisters. We were like, where's Casey? <laughs> my mom and dad were like, I don't know. It's so weird. Listen, I, I forgive them now as a parent because like, I get it. Like you're allergic to cats. You got the stray cat around. You don't want it around. You don't want it to get in the house and whatever. Well, how surprised were my parents, also the kids, when three days later we came back from um, an activity, got out of the car, and there was Casey the cat sitting on the steps just waiting for us. And I guess the story goes that my mom and dad looked at each other and said, well, I guess we have a cat, you know, and from that moment on, we fed the cat in the cold, harsh Nebraska winters growing up. Um, they let the cat stay in the garage and made a little bed. I mean, we really love this cat to the point that when I came home from um, my first year at college, the cat who was very old, because we never never knew the real age of the cat, but we had that cat for years. So she must have been very, very old, was sick, had cancer, had um, the cone on because of course we'd taken it to the vet. Of course we loved Casey and um, we had to put that cat down. And I'll never forget that feeling of of saying sort of goodbye to our first family pet. And because pets have a special place in our lives and remembering that first pet and how you say goodbye brings up all of these feelings. And and we know that that as much as we love our pets, that, that one day that they won't be with us. So how can you prepare for the death of a pet? And what can you do to make the grieving process a little bit easier? Well, here to continue this discussion and sort of talk us through it is psychiatrist Sanda Barker. Welcome. Thank you very much, Lisa. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for being here. You know, we can share different stories of pets that we've had over the, the years, and certainly people do that. And and knowing that pets don't live as long as humans and anticipating that loss is one thing. But why is losing a pet, when it comes down to it, so difficult? Well, I think you hit the, the nail on the head there in terms of expecting that pets' lives aren't going to be as long as ours, and that's very difficult for some people. And there's so many factors that can influence how intense that grief is that we feel. But for most pet owners who are very close to their pets, who consider them family members, mm -hmm. their life is usually disrupted in some way, some more than others. And, and one thing we know from uh, some of the research is that the strength of the attachment does play a role in the intensity of that grief. So mm. the more attached we are to a pet, 
the more intense we we agree for them. And what you mentioned, whether the death was expected and whether we had some time mm, to prepare mm-hmm. for it also makes a difference. You know, whether the pet died or had a terminal illness or simply was lost or in the case of Casey, just disappeared one day and kids are left wondering what happened. Is Casey coming back? And this can actually prolong the grief because there's no finality. We don't know what happened to the pet. And the other thing you mentioned that makes it more intense is that euthanasia decision. Mm -hmm. That is so agonizing. I've gone through it myself many times, and it never gets any easier making that decision to end the suffering of a pet, even though we know it's the right thing to do in our hearts. It is so difficult, Mm -hmm. and so many people have so much guilt afterwards. what would you say would be the the most common reactions that people have um, surrounding the, the, the death of a pet? Most of them that I've seen in my over 20 years of providing direct pet loss counseling mm-hmm. is the guilt. Pet owners, you know, our pets hmm. are so dependent on us. And people think that there's something they should have done, something they should have seen, even though their veterinarian couldn't detect maybe cancer in an earlier stage. People think they should have been able to. They should have gotten the pet to the vet earlier. They should have not left the gate open. They should have Mm. seen that the dog tended to roam or could jump the fence. They think that there's something they missed. They should have seen some sign, some, something that told them that their pet was really sick. But pets are so stoic, and they hide their symptoms very well because, mm. bottom line, they're you know prey animals, and so they don't want to appear weak for their own survival. Hmm. So it's, people can suffer with guilt um, a great deal, and helping them realize that with what they knew at the time, they did the best they could. Right. You mentioned earlier that that sometimes like having time to prepare or not can affect the intensity of that kind of grief. Are there other factors that, that determine that, that kind of deep grief? Well, some people kid themselves because they love their pets so much that their pet's going to live forever. Yeah. Or they're going <laughs> to outlive their pets. And... Um, then when that pet dies, it's so unexpected, and they had no time to really do any preparatory grief. And we found that people who are able to prepare for grief, for instance, when they know and accept their pet has a terminal illness, that that helps then with the grief intensity following the death because people can determine, okay, what is it that I can do now that's going to help me feel a little bit more comforted Mm -hmm. later So, you know, some people decide, gee, you know, he, uh, my dog really loved the beach, so I'm going to take him to the beach one last time. Mm. Some people, I'm going to have friends gather. Of course, with the pandemic, that's a little difficult to do now. Sure. But, you know, having some ceremony, having their favorite meal, um, doing things for them that they know they enjoyed. And so that preparatory can be helpful. But when a pet is lost or it's stolen, Mm -hmm. you're or it dies suddenly, mm. you don't have that yeah. opportunity. So you're also dealing with that shock that the pet has died. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about that um, preparatory sort of grief and what people could do to make it a little bit easier on themselves. Um, how how do you walk somebody through uh, that preparation process uh, for for the death of a of a loved a beloved pet? Sure. And and it makes a difference, Lisa, on whether we're talking about making that euthanasia decision right? Um, versus not. I mean, some people know that it's coming mm-hmm. and then they take it in and they're faced with a barrage of decisions they have to make on the spot. So preparing ahead of time and even when it's um, people have decided that, um, you know, the, the pet is, is going to die on its own, that they, you know, are not going to make that you know, decision, still things about if they are going to choose euthanasia, which interestingly in Greek, that term means good death. Mm -hmm. And it is the last loving thing we can do for pets. So just framing it, realizing that I can end my pet's suffering when the time is right. 
but talking with their veterinarian about what are the physical symptoms that are going to help make this decision. But bottom line, you know your pet best, and so you'll know when they no longer have the energy to greet you. They're not interested in doing their favorite things. They're not able to eat. They're not able to drink. They're not able to Mm -hmm. stand. Whatever those quality of life sectors are that you know are important to your pet. And then just thinking about, do I want to be present when euthanasia occurs? Mm -hmm. Getting all the information from their veterinarians about what the process is so they're aware that they'll be sedated first, that they'll be taken from them to probably put in an IV catheter, that they'll be brought back in and then given time to spend with their pet be able to say goodbye, to pet it and stroke it, take, you know, a, a lock of hair or whatever they is going to be comforting for them so that they're prepared for what may happen. They also need to assess whether they can emotionally handle what they're going to experience hmm. because sobbing uncontrollably and being upset is just going to upset the pet and not be helpful. So some people choose not to be present, but others choose to be present. They can decide who else they may want present to participate. Um, Having someone else, a loved one present can also be helpful. But they also need to be aware they have to decide how they want the body disposed. Do they want to leave it with their vet? And if they do, they need to understand how that body will be disposed because Finding out later that perhaps it was sent to a landfill can be very, very upsetting and increase the grief and the guilt related to that. But they can choose, you know, they have a lot of options. They can choose mass cremation. They can choose individual cremation. They can choose mass burial. They can choose um, individual burial. They can, you know, bury in their backyard if their ordinance is, um, locality ordinances will permit it. And then more and more, um, we have some cemeteries that allow pets to be buried alongside their owners. I know for my father-in-law years ago, we had his little Yorkshire Terrier cremated, and we placed it in his coffin Mm -hmm. with him when he died because he just adored this um, little Yorkie princess. And that gave us some comfort knowing she was with him. And then we had, of course, checked in advance in the funeral home at the time, and this was years ago, said that they would allow that. So a lot of decisions that need to be made ahead of, ahead of time that can be helpful. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Sandra Barker about dealing with the death of a, of a pet and how we can be prepared for it and the different issues surrounding it to make that kind of difficult transition. When you talk to different clients and, and walk them through this process, do you find that dealing with the death of a, parent, of a pet is similar to, to grieving and dealing with the death of a person? Over and over and over again, I do. And some um, some people just don't expect the overwhelming mm. grief that they experience when a pet dies. And some have felt very guilty saying, you know, I grieve more for this pet than I did for my mother. And some have said, I had a child die years ago and I'm grieving more. The intensity seems to be greater. So I think remembering how important a role that pet plays in a person's life mm. um, you know, it's not just the pet, the animal that dies. It's everything that pet represented as a person. It might have been companionship. It might have been security. Maybe the pet was the last living link to a spouse that died. This was a pet perhaps that lived with you for many years and went through numerous life stages. Hmm. Or many relationships perhaps came and went, but the cat was there throughout it mm-hmm. all. So all those things that the pet represented also is lost. And so we're grieving for all of that. Do you think that there is an importance on holding a funeral for a pet? Do you think that that helps the grieving process? I think a funeral for some people can help, but I think, you know, grief is such a um, individualized natural process and there's no really right right way to do it. But we have found holding some type of a ceremony, some type of a rite, including children, can be very, very helpful. So some people choose to plant uh, a rose or, a, you know, a plant or have a little garden. Other people set up um, a little place, a little corner in their home where they pay tribute with pictures and maybe a collar and a brush. It has to be based on that individual's 
cultural and personal preferences. What about children? Because because in, in many instances, kids can be affected a little bit more intensely or just in a different way than adults. How do you help them deal with, with this kind of loss? Well, primarily I help the parents. Mm-hmm. And most parents know best how to communicate with their children, but helping them... Um, reflect on the that the reactions their children have are reflecting their level of development and their cognitive understanding and and the their previous experiences they've had with any death or separation mm-hmm. um and that very young children they have little understanding of death i mean these you know kids live in the present and they're not really comprehending the passage of time so before age 5 they watch cartoons. They yeah. think death is reversible. Yeah. You know, the dog's going to come back tomorrow. Um, and they may be concerned about the well-being of their pet. You know, how's their, um, how's their cat going to eat? How's it going to drink? And they also think they may have caused the death. Hmm. You know, they may have, the pet may have interfered with something they were doing, some game, and they wish the pet would go away. And then the pet dies and they think it was their fault. So they need a lot of um, reassurance. And until about age nine, emotional expressions about death may be limited for many children, but they may still feel pain and loss. So by about age 10, and again, these are, excuse me, estimates, most children do understand the finality of death mm-hmm. and, and they're afraid of it. I mean, this is the age sure. of the boogeyman and things like that. So very important that parents do not try to hide death. Do not try to hide it. Don't pretend that the pet just, um, you know, went away. Don't try to go out as some have. The kids are at school and go buy another rabbit that looks the same. Mm. They are not the same. Kids, they may not understand it, but they sense when something's changing. They sense Mm. when a pet is ill. They sense the tension parents may have. They're so worried, will the child realize this? rabbit is a different one. So they need to talk in plain and simple language that the kids will understand and provide accurate information. Don't say Fluffy went to sleep right? because then you may have a child who's afraid to go to sleep. Right. Or don't say, you know, <laughs> creates a different a kinds dog. of problems. You know, he went to heaven oh. because the angels wanted him. Then you have a child who's afraid their parents yeah. are going to be taken because they're so good. So very important to Talking their language. Yeah. And and to admit your own feelings of pain and sorrow. So that allows the children to do that, too. Now, we only have about a minute left. And in that time, I just want to ask you the question that I think is on a lot of people's minds after they lose a beloved pet. When is the right time to get a new pet? For most people, not right away. Not when you're Mm -hmm. trying to replace a pet. Once you've allowed yourself to grieve, and you're ready to form a new relationship with a new pet, that's the time to then consider it and not trying to get the exact same uh, type of pet that looks exactly the same. Mm. I've had people who, you know, tried to replace a beagle immediately, and then Mm. they were disappointed because it didn't act the same, and which isn't really fair to you nor to the pet. So once you've allowed yourself to grieve, you're ready to form a new relationship and don't name it the same name. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> good point. Good. Uh, a lot of really good information about dealing with the loss of, 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 of pets that become family members, really, in, in many cases. Thank you so much for your good advice um, and sharing your experience with us. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. Thank you for dealing with this important issue on your show. You bet. Sandra Barker is a professor of psychiatry and founding director of the School of Medicine Center for Human-Animal Interaction. You can find more resources on coping with the death of a pet online at chai.vcu.edu. You're listening to The Lisa Show. We all want to be accepted by our peers, but sometimes our desire to be liked can be taken to the extreme and turn into excessive people-pleasing. We've all known those people-pleasers. We might even be a people-pleaser ourselves. But if we're, gonna, if we're constantly going the extra mile to make other people happy, 
we might just lose who we are in the process. In order to get rid of the problem, we have to identify the roots. So where do these people-pleasing tendencies come from, and what can we even do about them? Here to answer these questions is psychotherapist and author of three books on parenting, narcissism, and relationships is Dr. Aaron Leonard. Good morning, Dr. Leonard. Good morning. All right, so you do define for me people-pleasing, because some people may just think they're being nice. Right. Yeah. And, and that's a good thing. When, when people are selfless and conscientious and really consider other people's feelings and needs, that makes someone a very good person. Mm-hmm. But there are some people who take it too far and they end up neglecting and ignoring what they want and need. And so over time, this can really cause a um, sort of a detriment with their mental health because they're always sort of um, neglecting what they need and what they're feeling. And and the second part of it is they don't trust how they feel. Hmm. You know, they're always sort of relying on someone else and thinking that, well, they know better, they know more. And so they're, they're ignoring um, what they feel, which is really a difficult thing because our feelings are, are really the essence of who we are and trusting and understanding them helps us regulate them and manage them in a more healthy way. Are there questions that we can sort of ask ourselves, like a, a, a self-assessing test to, oh, am I just being kind or or have I lost myself in the process? Yes, absolutely. If, if you feel like you're not able to resurrect healthy boundaries with the people in your life and you find yourself sacrificing things that you need to do for yourself or things you need to do for your children or your immediate family because it's always about others, um, and you want to be perceived positively, then you really have to examine that and figure out how people pleasers have trouble resurrecting boundaries, right? Because they want to be liked, they want to be accepted, they want to be positively regarded. So they find they sort of avoid conflict. And so if someone is constantly spending more time trying to um, garner, you know, a favorable uh, public opinion out there, and they're and they're sort of sacrificing time with their children or their partner. It that might be a red flag. Mm-hmm. We can't have too many conversations about boundaries. Can we talk a little bit about how we can set those and and for some people maybe what those even are? Absolutely. So. People pleasers, like I said, people pleasers sort of shy away from resurrecting a boundary because they don't want to deal with a confrontation. They don't want to. Um, they don't want to make someone. They don't want to disappoint someone. You know, they don't want to cause someone else discomfort. And so they. They. Um, so, but what, what? An important thing to realize about boundaries is you can set a boundary extremely lovingly, mm. right? So if you say something positive to start the conversation oh my gosh, I love playing on your tennis team so much. It's so much fun. And then talk about how you feel. I'm very stressed right now. Um, Ricky's not feeling well. There's some other stuff going on. And then the issue, I'm not going to be able to play for you on Thursday. Right? So it's, so starting with the positive, talking about how you feel, and then the issue really helps the conversation go more smoothly because the, because the people pleaser is feeling like, okay, they're saying something positive. They're talking about how they feel, which is far less confrontational than, than something else. And then they're talking about the issue last. And so um, really having a soft tone, being respectful, being diplomatic, starting with something positive, that really helps you, a people pleaser, set a boundary. Where, do, where does people-pleasing or the tendency to be a people-pleaser come from? Um, I think that people-pleasing often comes from an attachment relationship with a caregiver. Hmm. So when someone doesn't trust how they really feel, it may be because they grew up with a parent who, you know, continually shamed them for how they felt or taunted them or um, dismissed. So, you know, parents, have, parents feel like, oh, well, there are some parents who who have a hard time if their child disagrees with how they feel. The parent thinks that that child should feel the way they do at all times, and if that child feels differently, then there's a problem, and they're, gonna, they're going to set that child straight. And what, what parents don't realize is you can honor a child's feelings while still upholding rules, expectations, um, you know, and so, so just simply saying to a child, you're angry, I can tell but you can't hit your sister, please go apologize. Even that simple statement of honoring the, honoring the feeling, but correcting the behavior. So 
really, kids really need to trust how they feel because if they can recognize, identify, and verbalize how they feel, they can manage it in a very healthy way. Kids who feel very ashamed of how they feel have to act it out because it's been repressed and suppressed because they feel ashamed. And so it's really important for parents to realize you know, your child is entitled to how they feel. Mm. And if it, differ, if it differs from the parent, that's okay. But honoring that feeling, but then correcting a negative behavior, um, that's, that's the really important thing. For those that weren't raised that way, you know, if we were in a household where our parents, for example, did not uh, allow those feelings to be felt or, you know, sort of asked us to feel the same way uh, as they did, how, how can parents that are listening to this be able to institute something like this if they have no experience in, in even what this would look like or sound like? Right. So the first thing is you always want to listen for a child's feelings. So people get caught up in the details of what's going on. And um, so it's really important for the parent to listen for a feeling as their child is talking. And then they need to reflect and honor that feeling. You're upset. I get it. I would be too. But honey, this is, you know, you have to focus on your homework. We need to get this done. So listening for a feeling instead of the manifest content is important. Reflecting and validating the feeling and then moving on to what the child needs to do. So the child feels understood and they feel connected to the parent who gets it. And then they feel a lot more compliant about what they need to be doing. And they learn to trust how they feel, which is really important because they can honor how they feel. And that's important in terms of adult life, because when you can trust and honor how you feel, you're able to communicate it in a relationship. You're able to manage it better and regulate it. You have a far higher emotional intelligence quotient. So it's very, it's really important. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Dr. Aaron Leonard about people-pleasing and sort of where it comes from, uh, how we can be able to empower our kids to not only share their feelings but also feel their feelings. As we as we talk about uh, the dangers of people-pleasing, we sort of have queued up a couple of them but haven't gone in real great depth. In real great depth. What are some of those other dangers of being a people-pleaser? Um, a lot of... It- it can be it can be a time so if people constantly people please and neglect how they feel and what they need to do for themselves and their families a lot of the time resentment can build up and if a lot of resentment builds up over time they can end up being very um angry and irritated and discouraged and depressed so when someone neglects how they feel and puts someone else's feelings first um they really sort of are doing themselves a disservice because um Hold on one second. (laughs) So sorry. Hold on one second. You're fine. (laughs) So sorry about that. Um, Okay. So that can, and if that resentment builds up over time, it can cause a lot of anger. And that anger for a good natured person can feel very negative. And that can cause some depression and some anxiety in the long run. It's a thing that for so many people, I think that that they resonate with a portion of this, but are maybe too afraid to look within themselves to see how just how much of a people pleaser they are. Uh, As you've spoken on some of these things, I'm like, yeah, I that that does ring a little true. I wonder, uh, is is it recommended for those that uh, that maybe don't want to face this, that they work this through with a with a therapist or is this something that can be accomplished on their own? I think both. So there's there's some big techniques a person can do and some smaller techniques a person can do. Getting into therapy is a great idea because your feelings are safe. You know, a therapist's office is the safest place to express whatever you're feeling, whatever emotion you have. And hopefully that therapist is very empathic and can, you know, honor and reflect those feelings. And when you have that experience with a therapist of feeling validated in terms of how you feel um, and honored and empathized with, that's like a little practice. That's like the little practice field, right? And if you continually have that experience with your therapist, you get practice. And you can go out and then feel comfortable expressing how you feel in the real world. And then the other things that people can do are sort of, you know, there are small techniques that someone can do every day that brings out the essence of who they are. Uh, You know, spiritual things can really help you tap into the essence of who you are. Um, A lot of physical activity can help you sort of, 
Um, that's very cathartic and can, t- and can help you. Um, so little, little self-care techniques that someone can do every day will, will really help them sort of ground themselves, center themselves, and really help them self-reflect and honor how they feel. Because feelings, feelings are really wrong. It's how we handle them. That, that's, the, that's the hard part. A scenario that I see is that someone may find themselves in a relationship where they have been a people pleaser for whatever reason, exhaustion or some other reason. They've decided, you know what, I, I need to make some changes. And then coming out of the uh, people pleasing sort of mode or manner m- might cause some strain on the relationship. How can people best navigate that scenario? Absolutely, you're right. So when someone sort of um, transitions from being ultra appeasing and placating and, you know, to sort of standing up for themselves, that can cause some discomfort in their partner. So having very open dialogues about this process is very important. And maybe talking to a couple therapists or, um, you know, someone in your congregation. So, so, uh, basically being very open about, I, I feel like I need to, you know, to stand up for how, how I feel. And I feel like you understanding that and respecting that is important. So these are the things I'm going to try and do in our relationship. I'm going to try and tell you how I feel if I'm feeling negatively. I am going to try and honor how you feel in return. I am going to try to resurrect healthy boundaries so I'm clearer about what I need. Um, and so all of those things, having very open discussions about this, and it, it doesn't have to be, you know, an hour-long chat over, you know, with a cup of coffee. It can be a very simple, concise dialogue about, hey, I'm feeling this, and I need this from you. Mm-hmm. And if you can't give that to me, that's okay, but I want you to know that, you know, maybe we can have this discussion in an, in an hour or two when you're calm or when you're more calm. Mm-hmm. Or maybe we can talk about this tomorrow when we're both feeling a little bit more settled about it. So just being very open with your feelings can really go a long way. Oftentimes the guests that we have here on The Lisa Show who speak about particular topics are those that have also had particular experiences with the topic of which they study or which they speak about. Is this something that you have, have dealt with? Oh yes. <laughs> so so well, I got so I so I got that on on the head. What have you benefited from? How have you seen the the trajectory of your happiness or or even of your life change as you have sort of taken this uh, personal responsibility away from people pleasing? Personally, um, it occurred for me when I had children, hmm. um, and I have dogs, and so. For me, um, I, it was very apparent to me when I had children that I was doing a lot of things out there in the world for other people to make them happy and to be accepted and well-regarded at the expense of sometimes my children. And that, for me, was extremely disturbing and unsettling. And so, um, uh, and I have twins. I can tell you a story about it. If, yes, if, please. Okay, so I have twins, infant twins, and they were preemies. And so I was, you know, very, very, very invested in their care, which required a lot of time and energy. And I went to a new physician, and um, this physician said to me, oh, you're having a hard time focusing on Kenny when, when I talk about Mary, so let's talk about, let's have Kenny out of the room. And she took my baby. I didn't know where she was sending him or, you know, and he, you know, she puts him in a nurse's arm and they walk down the hall and, and I was sick to my stomach and I didn't say anything and I didn't step up and I didn't ask and I didn't inquire. Um, and, you know, the time, of course, when we were talking about the other twin, Mary, I, all I could think about was, where's my baby? Mm-hmm. Where's my baby? Yeah. And, uh, and, and so finally, after we were done with Mary, I sort of raced out of the room with Mary and I found Kenny being passed around in the nurse's station two hallways down. <laughs> and that for me was a, a big wake up call. I had a hard time standing up for myself. My gut was going off the whole time. Red flag, red flag, red yeah. flag, red flag. Yeah. But yet I didn't, I couldn't trust how I felt enough to ask this doctor, this is, this doesn't seem professional or appropriate. My, that's my baby. Right? Mm-hmm. So in that moment, I promised myself, I made a commitment to myself that, that really um, 
honoring my feelings, especially my intuition when it comes to my children is very important. And I need to figure that out and regulate that. And the same with the same with my animals. I have two rescue dogs and they require a lot of care. And, you know, if, if something um, comes into my life, if, if I'm doing anything in my life and it impacts my ability to do what I need to do for my kids, my dogs and myself to keep myself happy, that's when I really feel strongly about resurrecting very lovingly and very kindly and very, very respectfully resurrecting a very healthy, healthy boundary and really just identifying my needs. And I've gotten much better with it in my old age and um, I'm very comfortable with it now. And, you know, it takes lots of practice and lots of self-awareness. It, it, it is a thing that for so many people, they hear it and they and I feel like they 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 recognize the need within themselves, but they just don't want to be that mean person or, you know, when they when they think about standing up for themselves, how will I it, it, it's very people pleasing oriented, right? Like, how will they receive this if I finally stand up for myself? And 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 if I'm just reflecting back the things that you've said this morning, we just we just have to to be true to ourselves. We just have to to uh, get better and to be better about sharing uh, what is sort of inside of us and, and what's in our gut that we need. Yes. And one very important thing for people pleasers to know is that if someone does not receive a boundary well and retaliates or um, is vindictive, that person has the problem, not the people pleaser. Mm. So there are people, there are people that the people pleaser are going to run across that are going to be very gracious when they set a boundary and very respectful. And then there are other people that are going to retaliate and punish that person passive aggressively for setting a boundary. Yeah. And those, those people who react negatively and who are sort of passive aggressive, those people have the problem, not the people pleaser. And that's data that the people pleaser can, lo- can use moving forward. Okay, I'm going to get a little space from this person. They don't seem very emotionally healthy. Mm-hmm. And then really surrounding themselves with the people who respect their boundaries. That's the key. Dr. Aaron Leonard, a psychotherapist and author of three books on parenting, narcissism, and relationships. Uh, I think what your dog was saying during the interview, uh, Aaron, is that it needs its walk. So I'm going to let you go. (laughs) Thank you so much for being a part of the conversation this morning. For more information on Dr. Leonard's work, you can visit DrAaronLeonard.com or RecoreCounseling.com. You're listening to The Lisa Show. You know, it's hard for me to think of a bad haircut story because I have had the best hairstylist for so long now uh-huh. that I don't put up with it. Like, I think early, earlier in my, like, early 20s, you know, when you're just trying to figure out who you are and who your hair is. <laughs> no, really, though. And what it will do, you'll you'll do things, you'll think... Any hairstyle could look good if it's done the right way, which is not true. And and then I found a really great hairstylist who – so I don't have a bad haircut experience. But I know that guys feel yeah, this diff- a lot. Different for guys. And, yeah, what's – And I don't know that I can really speak to it. Well, yeah, that's not but, true. The but, other day you walked in and you said – and I said, oh, you got a haircut. It looks nice. And you're like, no, it doesn't. It looks I, terrible. Yeah, and I said – I don't know what I'm missing. Well, I have eyes. That, I have an opinion. Well, uh, but you're also a kind person, so I don't know that I would ever be like, "Hey, what do you think about this?" And I offered it though, and so I don't. What is your definition of a bad haircut? Well, well, let let me take this sort of a different way because we are going to talk about communicating with your hairstylist. We've right. got Michelle Lindsay. She's on board, and maybe you can weigh in on this, Michelle. But let me tell you my story first. <sighs> this is what happens when I go to get my haircut. Okay. I don't go to uh, the same person. The same person every time so i don't mistake well sure sure (laughs) but i sometimes i need to get my haircuts and my haircut in different parts of the valley and it's just easier for me to go into uh if you'll forgive the words a chop shop to get my haircut well then there you go but then i sit down and they go how do you like your hair what what are we doing for you today? I think yeah. is the, uh, the and, opening line of the conversation. And you don't know what to say. And, and what I say is, <laughs> I, I don't know. Just make me just make me not look like this, please. And they go, wait, that's not wait. specific. They go, that what? And I'm like, listen, I don't ever do my hair, and it's hats the second I leave work. So so they're thinking, oh great, well the bar is so low. Yeah, he doesn't yeah. care. Yeah, so. And, and and I feel bad, and, and hopefully we can talk about this part of communicating with your hairstylist, too, because when they get done, they go, what do you think? And I go, it's shorter. Thank you. 
So many things that I have to say, but I'm going to let Michelle say it. Friend of the show, Michelle Lindsay, L'Oreal, uh, professional, haircut extraordinaire. Hair stylist. Hair stylist. Thank you for coming back to the show. Thanks for having me back. Now, most people are, are pretty particular with their hair, right? Or do you think that people are mostly like Richie and don't say they don't care, but really do? Yeah. So I think it's kind of <laughs> half and half. Really? Like, I think... Yeah, and it's not just men or women. Like, I have very, very particular men clientele that know exactly what they want and what they like. And then there's some that are like, you know, I don't know. Right. (laughs) Well, okay, so when they say, I don't know, I mean, what, what are some things that they could say to you that would give you a better idea of what they want? Right. So one rule of thumb I say is be true to yourself. So Mm -hmm. Richie is not being true to himself. Because... He's sitting down in the chair and saying, yeah, do whatever you want. I'm up for anything. And that's not really true because he wasn't happy when he left. So there's something like a muck in that situation. <laughs> so he's not say. true to himself. There are some things that he doesn't like. So, so he needs to say, I don't want it this short. I don't like it with clippers. I don't, you know, mm. either say things you don't like. So clearly there is something he doesn't like about his haircut. So say what you don't like. Um, say what you do like about your hair. Say how hmm. much time you want to spend on your hair. Say um, how often you want to come in and get it done. Um, and then ask questions. Ask the stylist, do you think this would look good on me? Would this work with my hair? Do you think I'd be able to style this? What do, what do I need to do um, to make this happen? Um, and be honest about what's been done to your hair in the past. This is particularly uh, address toward women because mm-hmm. if you have if you color your hair and you have long hair um, there's a lot of hair history there and so you would need to talk about your hair for about three years past of what has been done to your hair especially if it's been colored a lot oh yeah um, so be honest with what's done because we're going to be able to tell once we get into it so don't think you're going to sneak anything past us just be honest upfront and be true to yourself be honest about your hair is not a thing that I ever would have thought that we would be talking about. But but Lisa, no, you, you do sort of cue up this yeah. uh, this conversation, and, and we can have this with Michelle. Then there, based on what you're saying, uh, like a dentist or like a general practitioner, it is important that you go to the same person time after time because then they know. I think so. Is is that how you feel, Michelle? If. If your hair is important to you and you really want to not have to worry about it, then you find a really good professional who knows you. Absolutely. There are some people who don't really care and are up for anything. And those are the ones who just go to the walk-in places because it's good enough. Um, so there is a place for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> some, pe- some people don't have doctors. You know, they don't have one particular doctor. They just go into the clinic and it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but if you really do care... Um, Richie, I think you really do care. He does. <laughs> but, he does care. But there are things, yeah, there are I'm things answer that, that can for actually you. bring to the stylist with him um, to help their job out. And so they can get more of a consistent style even in those walk-in places. We're talking with Michelle Lindsay, who's friend of the show, hairstylist, color expert, instructor for L'Oreal Professional, about how you effectively communicate with your hairstylist. So... Someone who is going to walk into an appointment, how can they know what they want ahead of time um, before they go through? Like, what are some things that they can do so that they're like, "Uh, I need to answer some of these questions before I sit in that chair? Right. So one big thing is bring pictures. Hmm. Like, pictures are probably the easiest way to describe things. So you can um, bring in stuff that maybe you like the particular color, you don't know how to describe it and what Mm -hmm. you like about it. Um, uh, bring in several pictures because you can dissect those pictures and say, okay, I like the length of this, but I don't like necessarily like the bangs in this or, um, in Richie's case, I don't like the long top or it's because I, like I have a cowlick that people don't know how to deal with the cowlick. That's <laughs> they, I, it, it makes or breaks on the cowlick. Well, see, then you do have something to tell your yes, hearse. You, you have to communicate that. They'll figure it out once uh, they get in oh, there. Oh, but I, I tell you them. tell them. I say, hey, <sighs> warning, 
this this will be our nightmare as you cut my hair. And some get it right. Some get it. Oh, they get it but right. But why leave it to them and, to guess? And then the other ones, yes. they, they yeah. go, oh, yeah, you warned me. It'll grow back. So let me ask you this, Michelle. Do, are you ever happy when, as a stylist, when people say, say, just do whatever you think will look best on me? Do you find that you have good results with that or or bad? Well, I particularly love it, but I have had bad experiences. Um, I have to gauge my clientele to know if they really, truly want me to do whatever I think is best. Um, and if you're not that kind of person, please, 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 please say you're not. Yeah, like, like, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Right. So, so, so let me ask you this. Well, like, this some is a... people will say, take off a half an inch, and they are like, oh, my gosh, you took off too much. You know, and other people yeah, are like, freaking out. Oh and they gosh, freak out. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what about the situation where you, you've sat down, and obviously you can't do this if you've taken too much, but they haven't taken enough, or you're, uh, you're yeah, dissatisfied you're like, oh, with what— it doesn't look what, like you did anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What oh. has taken place? I always, like— and maybe this is just the personality type of, uh, of people. Like I would never send food back at the um, at, at the restaurant. Right. So I would always What's just be the like, etiquette oh, all when right. you don't like the final product. Yeah, that hair will be right. fine. What do you do? what do you say then? It's okay to say I think I need a little more off. There's it's not offensive. We need to know. Like the more communication you have with us, the better the end product will be. But I'm worried she's going to spin in my hair. Like, they don't do that. Like food. <laughs> no, that's not that's not the case. No, we ha- it's like a communication thing. So, say it's kind of like a marriage, and you you're just barely learning about each other. Yeah, and you need to learn how to communicate with each other. So, um, so you need to say, yeah, that's not quite enough. Or, you know, what I found from my previous haircuts in the past is <laughs> at this talc, if they leave this longer then it works better. So be careful there, and then we can adjust it as it goes. So don't cut it as short. Or, oh, that's a great you know. way to say it. So those things we welcome because we don't live with your hair. We don't know, especially if you're the first time coming in. We're not sure. So the more communication you have with us, the better. It's not offensive. Yeah. Our feelings won't get hurt. And in fact, the more you communicate, the better your stylist will be and the better the end result will be. Okay, so this is a tricky question, but I know you can handle it. If you don't know what you want, but you know you just need a change, yeah. what are good ways to still really communicate that with your stylist? You need to know your limitations. So oh. someone a big for someone a big change is two inches off, and oh my gosh, their lives are right. <laughs> like fulfilled, you know. Um, others is like maybe some bangs or fringe or layers will be, um, you know, the end all be all. <laughs> right. But um, sometimes um, if you come in with, hey, so this is too short, this is too long, you know, so have some parameters. Um, say maybe if you cut it up over my ears, that's too short. Oh, okay. But I can handle like chin length or I can handle, you know. Um, shoulder length, that's about as short as I'm going to go. Um, this is the problems I've had in the past. So if you come in with like, this is what I like about my hair. This is what I don't like right now. Um, so is there some way we can fix that? Is there some way with a new hairstyle or maybe they gave you a new hairstyle and it is not working for them. So you need to communicate and say, instead of saying, uh, let's just go back to what we did before. Let's say, tell them what's not working. Um, you know, say that, yeah. uh, that just kept splitting in the bangs. What, is there something I can do differently? Um, we're here to help you. We want, we want to make right. your life easier. <laughs> right. We want you to look good and feel good about yourself, especially at this time. Um, and, uh, we know it's a big connection of how you look and how you feel. It's really interconnected. So we want to help you feel better. You know, the it's setup about communication. Yeah. The setup of this yeah. whole conversation is about communicating with your hairstylist. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I've also appreciated when I have gone to a particular hair uh, cutting place and I've had the same person, mm-hmm. uh, the relationships that you build and in in a way that your stylist can become your therapist a little bit. Uh, do you, do I don't know anything about yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> right. do, do you find uh, do you find yourself employing some of those skills as well, Michelle? Absolutely. It's really been uh, 
the the case right now. I think um, people underestimate kind of like how much they need it when they feel like inside. Oh, I need to get my hair done. I think it's I think it's a little bit of the aesthetic and but mostly of like the feeling. Like no, really, right. of being nurtured and listened to, and honestly, yes. I liken it to when I get my teeth cleaned and how fresh that feels. That's yeah. kind of how, even though it's not as pleasant of a situation, but that feeling afterwards, that's the kind of the, that's how I can describe what it's like to get your hair done. Um, so yeah, mentally, emotionally, and physically, it kind of, we kind of hit on all of those, those aspects. So as we've been visiting, I've sort of taken some mental notes as far as what I need to go. First of all, uh, finding someone that I can go to uh, with, um, with uh, regularity, uh, having right. the same person. Find I think your person. I, yeah. fi- find mm-hmm. my person. Uh, being specific in what I want, mm-hmm. uh, maybe even being more observant going, oh, I really liked this and this Looking is how we got there. And, uh, maybe mm-hmm. bring in some pictures to say, yes. can you make me look like this? Uh, yes. Or as close as I could possibly get to be that, which would be my scenario. What else? Are, are there? Is there anything that's mm-hmm. missing that can really help us to have a great uh, hair styling or hair cutting experience? Um, one thing I just would suggest if you're planning on a big change, um, time is very limited when um, style, how stylists are booked. So if you're thinking you want to just like change it all up, make sure you say beforehand um, so that they have enough time to kind of talk you through it, help teach you how to do your new style. Um, it might be a whole change of color. So if that's what you're thinking, then please make sure that you say beforehand so you can get the appropriate time booked. Oh, that's um, a good point. And then also make sure you say like how much time you're willing to spend on your hair and what your budget is um, and how much time you have for that day. So there's nothing worse when we're like giving you a whole new do yeah. and you have like you all of a sudden say, oh, my gosh, I got to pick up my kids and you're knee deep in the middle of a color. Uh, there's no turning back. <laughs> yeah. So if that's going to be a situation, please, please say beforehand um, before we get started. Good communication is the key to a healthy relationship. It really is. It really is. Let me let me ask you just this one last thing in parting. Uh, I'm thinking of perming the front, okay. front only perm. Is that or okay. is that coming back? Do we need to do we? <laughs> How much time will I need yeah. with you, Michelle? Front only perm. It is a thing, and I would plan on a couple hours just to be safe. All right. Well, I look forward to sitting down and being able to pour my heart out okay. uh, to <laughs> Michelle Lindsay, friend of the show, a hairstylist, a color expert, and an instructor for L'Oreal Professional. You can find more of her tips at colorgeekchic.com. If you are not finding and following The Lisa Show wherever you social media lies, is that a word? I'm not sure. Uh, Be sure that you find The Lisa Show that you follow, and you are welcome to interact with us there. You can find us on the BYU Radio app, which is free. You can email us at thelisashow at byu.edu. What we're saying, essentially, is we would love to hear from you. I'm not going to beg, but I am going to ask very nicely. You're welcome to reach out to us. Thanks for listening to The Lisa Show.